Hi, everyone. I'm Anita Lustria, and for many years I did live radio. Then I transitioned to the podcast world where I feel I found my home. I love talking about spiritual formation, justice issues, and spiritual practices. Throw in the Enneagram, movies, and current events from time to time, and that's what you get on the podcast. I'm glad you've come along for the ride. Welcome to Faith Conversations. Welcome to Faith Conversations, everyone. Glad you've joined me, and Happy New Year. Yep, it is the new year. We've been looking forward to it for a while. And isn't it funny? We look forward and forward and forward, and boom, ooh, it's here, and it's even behind us. We're already into the new year now. Glad that you've uh, downloaded the podcast for this first episode of the new year, and my guest is Barb Hill. I'll tell you a little bit about Barb in just a moment. Just a quick thank you, a huge thank you to those of you who have supported the podcast. And, you know, as usual, there there is some lovely year-end giving and a big thanks to all of you who have been a part of that. What I like to say is um, consider giving a $30 gift, kind of a subscription for the year, and you can mail it in, you can PayPal it in, Venmo it in, whatever you want to do. If you have questions about that, you can email me at producer at anitalustria.com, producer at anitalustria.com. Well, today, Barb Hill is my guest. She's written a beautiful devotional. It's a 52-week devotional called Seasons of Waiting. And I don't know about you, but to me, when I hear that title, it's very invitational seasons of waiting. And in fact, it says on the front cover, an invitation to hope. And I love that as well. Let me just tell you a little bit about Barb before I officially welcome her to the podcast. She is a writer uh, and licensed mental health therapist who is passionate about supporting others in both their navigation of faith and mental health. And uh, Barb, is talking to us from Nashville, Tennessee. And so, Barb, welcome to Faith Conversations. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Well, I'm glad to have you here. And I always like to give a couple of offerings to the Faith Conversations uh, podcast family when it comes to um, a new year and to devotionals. I think they can really help us on our journey. Sometimes we need a little jump starting. Sometimes we need someone to hold space for us with us. And that can happen in writing and in a book as well. And I have to tell you, I came across your book. I wish I could remember who, but someone on Instagram was talking about how beautiful it was, how thoughtful it was. And I saw the title that I've already mentioned, Seasons of Waiting. And I thought, who's Barb Hill? Let me look her up. Let me look this book up. Oh, Tyndale. All right. Let me contact Tyndale and see if I can have a conversation with Barb about this beautiful book and how it came to be. So one of your friends or acquaintances uh, or someone was talking about how amazing this book is and it caught my eye on Instagram. So that's how I learned about the book. I thought I'd just tell you that. That's amazing. I love how social media just connects us all in some way. <laughs> I know. Isn't that the truth? Um, why? This is your first book, right? Yes. Yeah, I thought so. Why a devotional for your first book? I think that's mm -hmm. always interesting to, to learn 
the kind of book that, that an author writes for the very first time and, and why that is? Mm. So there are a lot of reasons why I was drawn to the idea of writing a devotional, but I would say maybe the, the main one was uh, I just love the idea of being able to be a part of somebody's everyday routine. Um, you know, if you read a really good book and you love it, you may pick it back up again, um, maybe a little bit down the track, but with a devotional, it becomes um, such an integral part of people's lives. They wake up in the morning they sit down with their cup of coffee and they read it, or they sit down at night before they go to bed and they read it. Um, and so I just loved the idea of being able to um, be a part of people's lives on a more daily basis. Um, and that I know for myself, the devotionals that I love, um, I've had for years. Like if you looked at them, you could tell they're very torn and tattered and well-loved and, <laughs> um, and they've yeah. been a companion of sorts yes. I've been through so many different seasons, so many different challenges and um, to be able to write something that could be a companion of sorts was um, just one of the biggest draws. Ooh, I I like that response. I mean, your response is your response, but I <laughs> I love that because um, I agree. I mean, years ago, year, we're talking like 2007 or eight, so it's been a while. Um, two friends and I, back when I was working for Moody Radio, we wrote uh, a 50 to 365 day devotional mm. um the moody publishers put out back then and um we still hear from people that mm. go back to that so i love your i think you're absolutely right and i think a full year devotional you don't see them as much anymore you'll see a 90 day or a whatever mm -hmm. but i think that full year really mm. does give you an opportunity to companion someone for a long period of time. So I love that. So second question um, to, you know, why, why devotional format, but secondly, why the theme of waiting? Mm. I, I think that's also interesting. And I'm guessing that that intersects really specifically with your own life. Usually that that happens with authors, right? <laughs> mm -hmm, for sure. Yes. That answer feels layered because as you said, one big part of it is my own um, personal experience of waiting and um, truly how much um, the navigation of waiting in my own life has been a means of transformation and change and healing and so on. And then as a therapist sitting with my clients and in, in observing and uh, navigating waiting in their lives as well. So this kind of this intersection between um, my life, uh, my personal life, and then my work as a therapist. And, um, and I think that is also seen in, in the marrying of faith and mental health, um, yeah. that my personal relationship with God, and then my work as a therapist and my passion for mental health. So well, and I want to get into that mental health theme too, in a few minutes. Um, I'm curious to know also what, well, well I, I should say this when I think of waiting, um, what, uh, what elevates for me is patience or impatience, <laughs> depending those two words. Um, what does waiting look like through your eyes or, or what lens are you using to look at it through? Mm, yes. 
That's a great question because I think that's um, one of my main objectives for the reader is to is to offer them a new lens to look through when it comes to waiting because as you said, um, uh, we can experience a lot of impatience in waiting seasons because waiting is uncomfortable and um, we you know we want what we want yesterday um, <laughs> we don't want to have to wait for it um, so the you know the lens that I'm offering the reader is one that. Um, that I've really discovered, not obviously in the writing of the book, but before that. And um, I would say the way that I previously looked at waiting was one that only felt negative. It only felt like an experience that would um, be taking from me, withholding from me, delaying my desires. Um, I couldn't imagine that waiting had anything valuable to offer me. Um, And it was something that I wanted to speed through to get to the other side of so I could have what I wanted. Um, But the lens that I'm offering, at least one of them through the book is um, to see waiting as a means of transformation. Um, And not only that, not only a means of transformation, but um, kind of bringing together two things. One, that waiting actually does have something to give me. It has something to offer me if I avail myself to that process. And then second to that, um, this belief that God really does care about what you want, that it's not one or the other. It's not only transformation without um, God's care about what you care about, but that both of those um, are important and valuable. Yeah. Yeah. Isn't that true? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I also think, I'm guessing you probably have a perspective on this. I'm sure you do. Um, mm-hmm. especially with that, you know, the word waiting in the title. Mm-hmm. Um, I, so I want to, I want to ask a couple of questions, one about your approach with seasons, but, I, but I also want to ask, um, or, or make the observation, have you comment on it from your perspective that I think many of us look at waiting as something that is totally passive, that there's mm-hmm. nothing we can do. Waiting is happening to us and we just sit there. And I guaranteed you as a therapist have a perspective on that. But don't you think a lot of us think it's passive only? Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that brings a lot of helplessness when we like to use your words, we feel as though life is happening to us that we don't have any a word I use a lot in the book is agency Um, that we, you know, when we're in that place where we feel as though the waiting is happening to us and we have to be passive in that process, we don't feel as though we have any agency. We don't have any, any, any influence over our lives or what is happening in our lives. And that breeds hopelessness, helplessness, um, anxiety. It Mm -hmm. kind of leads to a lot of different negative experiences. So that's another thing I wanted to flip on its head, um, that, uh, waiting is not synonymous with passivity. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, I knew you would have words about that <laughs> <laughs> for sure. <laughs> um, why follow the seasons? So I thought that was really interesting when I got your book and realized, I mean, I knew seasons is in the title, right? Seasons of waiting. But then when I realized you you really do. You literally follow the seasons and you begin with fall. Mm-hmm. And um, t- talk about why follow the seasons. 
mm-hmm. and why you decided to start where you did in the seasons mm-hmm. with the seasons. I'm curious mm-hmm. about that. Yes, that's such a good question. So there's lots of reasons why um, I wanted to structure the book that way. Um, one of them I would say is is the um, just the rhythm of the seasons help to mirror, I think, our experience of waiting, especially when um, the waiting drags on mm. uh, from year to year. Um, Did you hear that groan? Mm. Yes. <laughs> I share the groan. I, I get that. Um, that there's this, yeah, this rhythm that we follow that honestly, actually, once I wrote the book, I, I saw this and, and I didn't see it before while I was writing it, is that in a lot of ways, those uh, that seasonal rhythm mirrors the stages of grief to me. Um, uh. And the reason why I started with fall is because um, it, just that picture of fall itself, that there's a releasing, there's a letting go. Um, and that's often an important starting place when it comes to our experience of waiting, that there's a lot that's attached itself to us, whether it's limiting beliefs or um, painful experiences that have um, kind of built up over time. And there's this right off the bat, an invitation to release a lot of those things that have attached themselves to us that are really preventing us from being able to see waiting in the way we're describing before that, oh, it might actually have something valuable to offer me. But if I have all of this stuff attached to me and kind of eclipsing my view, um, then I I won't be able to to gain um, what I could out of this um, experience of waiting. So um, yeah, I think part of it is mirroring the stages of grief and um, and to help tell the story of waiting. Um, you know, we think about winter, we think about barrenness. Um, and that's one of the experiences we have in waiting that there's an unoccupied, unfulfilled area of our lives that often feels barren. And then we might transition into a spring-like experience where there's some renewal of hope. And then summer, um, you know, it speaks to this kind of youthfulness and the spontaneity. And, and then we might find ourselves back in fall or back in winter. And so there's this rhythmic um experience to waiting that I wanted to, um, I guess, uh, make possible or to convey to the reader through the seasons. I I really like that. And I'm not sure if I expected you to bring up grief or not. I mean, it makes perfect sense. Mm -hmm. And that whole idea of letting go and moving into that fall season. uh, I think the older I get, or maybe the more aware I become, that's possibly a better way to put it. The more aware I am of grief in our lives, grief in our society, grief culturally, grief in the church, outside the church. I, grief is pervasive. And I don't, I think in North America, especially, or the United States of America specifically, maybe. The West, I don't think we deal well with grief, or we think it is one note, the loss of a person in our lives, period. Mm-hmm. Now, there's been, certainly in more recent years been much more awareness, mm-hmm. but just say a word about grief. It is very broad. Mm-hmm. Yes. I like the way you said that. We often think it's one note. It's a great way to say it because it is very complex and nuanced and there's so many different experiences that um, 
would be a grief-like experience. So I think when we consider waiting, um, it's the other side of that grief coin, so to speak. So um, when we've lost something that we had, something or someone we had, um, of course, we understand that to be grief. But when we're waiting for something or someone, there is an experience of grief because it's it's a void. It's an unfulfilled, unoccupied area of our lives. So um, I think in my own experience, it was really validating to see waiting that way, that when I'm waiting for this area to come to fruition or um, to be fulfilled, there is an experience of grief in that. And all the different stages you would go through in any other experience of grief, that anger, depression, bargaining, shock, denial, acceptance, you're going to experience while you're waiting. Yes. And I wanted to offer that to the reader as well. And that's probably one of the um, biggest pieces of feedback that I've received so far about the book of how validating it was for people to hear that, oh, waiting is also an experience of grief to provide some language around that. Mm. I'm also thinking of the other side of waiting, of anticipating something good that's coming, mm -hmm. waiting for this good thing, like waiting for retirement or I'm trying to think of, you know, or waiting, oh, anticipating a move to a location you've wanted to mm -hmm. be in and, mm -hmm. and then getting there and finding out it's not what the excited anticipation was. And mm -hmm. then some grief shows up or sadness or how we don't even have the words yet for it. And we think, Oh, I though I, it can't be those things because I have looked toward this with excitement I, I can't even, I can't tell people it's not what I thought mm -hmm. it would be. Mm -hmm. Yes, that's such an important point. And I think that grief usually takes us by surprise um, because there's so much anticipation and there's a picture that we have in our minds of what that experience is going to look like. So when we get to that experience and it's not, it doesn't feel the way that we thought it would, there is yeah. a lot of grief in that. Yeah. Yeah, for, for sure. Um, mm -hmm. Two things. I'm still promising we're going to talk more about mental health here in a moment, but <laughs> but I want to I, I want to make sure I mention um, two things. One, the format of the book, of which I am a big fan, uh, mm -hmm. and I'll have you talk about that in a minute. But I also you can add into this um, the, the beautiful artwork. I think I have been much more mindful of art in books lately, and maybe that's been on publishers' minds, or I don't know. But I love that there's something about a book that includes beauty in it that is um, that really draws me in. And your book has this gorgeous artwork. Why did you feel that that was an important part of this book? And maybe I'll answer that first, and then talk, talk to us about the format um, mm. of the devotional. Mm -hmm. So the artwork is done by my friend Shailene, who was actually one of the first people that I shared um, the huh. vision of this book with. Um, cool. She now lives in New Mexico, but at the time she lived here in Nashville. And um, there was a lot of reasons why I thought the art would be such a great complement to the book. The seasonal aspect and being able to have art um, kind of bring that seasonal um, aspect alive. Um, and like you said about the beauty that you can see throughout the book because of the art, 
it also speaks to how no no matter how it feels, every season has a distinct type of beauty. So that winter, even though it's it's barren and it looks dead, that there is a distinct kind of beauty that you experience in a winter season of waiting, um, spring, summer, fall, and so on. And um, and I love how Shailene was able to um, to create art that really did um, exemplify that whole idea that in every season um, that there is a beauty to experience. Um, so the art helps to tell kind of the overall story of waiting and to further um, speak to this idea that um, waiting uh, has value, has purpose. Yeah, I I really, I love that. I'm flipping through the book right now because I wanted to see one of the winter esque mm-hmm. scenes or or uh, pieces of artwork. I just yeah, I really feel like it added adds so much. And um, I'm not really an artist, but like a would be artist, and so <laughs> I actually pulled out little um, uh, markers and pens and kind of doodled around with the artwork, just having mm-hmm. fun myself with adding to what was on the page, just, Mm. just a nice little personal activity, but it's gorgeous as it stands. Mm -hmm. I just did that because I thought it was just fun for me. Mm -hmm. Um, Let's talk about the format before we move on to, to mental health. Uh, I really like that you start with a, an entry, um, a thoughtful entry. And, and then you go from there giving us some exercises, but how do you describe that? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So this was my, the format was my attempt to, uh, to get as close to a daily devotional as humanly possible. <laughs> um, my original vision was to do a true daily devotional, but then we realized how laborious it would be um, to do that. So we pivoted a little bit. And, um, and so the, the hope is that, and in no, I'm sure every reader is going to go about the devotional in their own way, but the way that we designed it was on that first day of the week, you would have that main devotional, the longer one. And then on the four days that follow, there's many devotionals that are more interactive. So there's um, a prompt at the end of each one of those, um, uh, mini devotionals, we called them living it out. And, I think the format too is really reflective of how I approach my work as a therapist. I'm very collaborative. I'm very interactive. Um, very rarely will we will we only sit and talk. Um, there'll be some sort of um, even if it's after the session, there'll be a there'll be a suggestion for my client to do something to engage what we've um, talked about, so that the conversation and the information moves from our head to our heart, to our body, um, so that it can be really internalized. So I think one, um, one point for me on the format was, um, to get as close to a daily devotional as possible and then for it to be interactive. So Mm -hmm. for the reader to not be passively reading, um, only, but to be able to, to take this information and really engage it, um, so that they can internalize it on a heart level. Uh, can I just say mission accomplished? <laughs> really? Uh, so I think sometimes when we read a whole new entry every day, we don't take it in as fully. I love that there's this one main entry, but then different points, different uh, on the different days following it, the point back to that or have this engagement that you just talked about. I just think it's mm-hmm. a really 
smart way to do it. And and I think I've learned through the years, one of my very favorite spiritual practices is Lexio Divina. Mm-hmm. And um, I lead a weekly Lexio group. And there's something about less is more, right? We know that, we say that, but the smaller passage that you focus on um, for, as opposed to, you know, reading for volume, reading to read the Bible through in a year. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that, but we take that in, in a very different way. You Mm -hmm. can't take it in the same way. So I I love this format because I think it helps uh, people sit and soak a little bit more and engage better. Mm -hmm. That's That's great to hear. My opinion, but I I really do. I think (laughs) you you hit the nail on the head. Mm -hmm. So let's, let's talk about faith and mental health. I feel like there's finally been an uptick in attention paid to mental health issues in faith circles. Is that just my perception or is that reality? And why is this so important to you to marry these? Mm-hmm. Yes, I I would uh, share that sentiment. I think there has been an uptick um, in uh, seeing the value and trying to honor um, the world of mental health and seeing that faith and mental health can really complement each other and they don't have to be siloed off from one another. Um, I think, um, you know, when I consider my education journey to be a therapist, I mean, my, my first program was in a biblical counseling program. And then, um, my second program was a, um, clinical mental health counseling program. So, um, I, in both of those programs, there was this, uh, this passion and this desire to really bridge these worlds of faith and mental health, which I, I see a lot just in the work I do with clients, seeing each client I work with as a holistic being with a mind, a body, and a spirit. And each one of those parts of them have unique needs, unique strengths, weaknesses, um, so on and so forth. So I have seen um, amazing progress in my work with clients that are, you know, clients that identify with the Christian faith, where we can bring these worlds together. Um, And there's, there's so many things I could say about that. I mean, even just some of the, the theological beliefs that they hold that might actually be harmful can affect their mental health and their physical body. And we don't often see the implications of that. Um, Like if there's a lot of fear in their relationship with God that has come from some sort of belief that they picked up when they were young, um, that fear per, you know, pervades their, their mind and their body. And so I see so many important implications of really marrying um, faith and mental health and seeing that, Um, I mean, I'm of the opinion that I think they work best walking hand in hand. Um, And I've seen the fruit of that in my work with clients. And I think that has not always been welcomed. And I will say I have a very negative view of biblical counseling schools or (laughs) when I see that, it's kind of like run for the hills, (laughs) 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 which um, I I know is not necessarily true. I'm, you know, the older I get to, I, I, or the, the maybe more mature that I get, um, it depends on the people who are teaching, you know, you, it's, you can't, with anything in life, you cannot just paint with a broad brushstroke. 
Mm. Um, you know, you have to look individually, but, but that has been my perception about biblical counseling, not wanting to reach across the aisle to the mental health aspect. Now it sounds like in talking with you that that, that is something that is changing. And, and I suppose it probably does depend on the institution as well, where the mm-hmm. teaching is happening, but I think that's really important because it needs to change. It needs to happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, I agree with you that the, the two go hand in hand, um, or certainly ought to be going hand in hand, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. uh, yay or nay. What do what do you think about my thoughts on that? Yes, I completely agree. I think it's interesting um, because I grew up in the northeast of the country and yeah. I grew up in a, a church that um, didn't expose me at all to therapy and mental health. Um, and, and honestly, I think that's one of the reasons why I discovered the profession later in life, because I didn't even realize I could do that as a job. Oh, um, wow. Yeah. Yep. Then now I'm living in the Bible Belt, living in <laughs> <laughs> Nashville, Tennessee. So I have, which has its own, which has its own, uh, oh, what do you, uh, struggles and ways that it's entrenched and all that too, but for sure. Yeah. Yeah, So I have such a varied experience around that, um, growing up in a church that really didn't expose me to the importance of mental health and therapy. Um, and now living in the Bible belt where, um, I think there still is a level of stigma around mental health. They think it's slowly but surely changing for the better. Um, and um, so I think like I'm, I'm almost able to straddle a, a couple different worlds because of the world I grew up in being in the Northeast where it's not the Bible Belt, um, but growing up in a church that um, really didn't expose me to that. So I think it affords me um, some advantages in the work I do now with clients because I kind of understand a variety of worlds that people are coming from. Yes. Oh, I can see that. And I'm very curious what state you grew up in, where you were. Yeah. So I grew up in Maryland. My um, parents grew up in Boston, Massachusetts. That's where all of our extended family is. Yeah. Because I was waiting. I didn't hear a New England accent with you. Because I'm a Mainer. I was born Mm. in Maine and didn't maybe only spend about five full years living there, but Mm -hmm. so that's interesting, but yes, that part of the country, no, very, you know, not, I would say late, especially in faith circles, late to come to the table with mental health uh, Mm -hmm. stuff. And I don't fully know the why of that, but in a way Mm -hmm. it doesn't matter at this point. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I love that. I think, yes, you have come out of a space that affords you knowledge and straddling the fence in a way. I mean, you just, you know how to communicate across Mm -hmm. the fence. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. I I love that. I appreciate that. Um, What do you think as you, as people come to see you today? um, And, and I I think one of the things that I certainly notice is people are much uh, quicker to make an appointment with a therapist than they used to be. Mm-hmm. A stigma that was there once upon a time, it doesn't seem to be, or much less. Um, what what are the main things that people come to talk about? I mean, is there a an overarching theme, like the majority of people come because they feel stuck in life or was some kind of abuse in the background or what, you know, I'm curious if there are definitely a, a couple of main themes that bring people through the door. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. A few, um, 
experiences that come to mind that often compel clients to pick up the phone and come in, I would say this persistent nagging experience of anxiety um, that just feels so disruptive to their lives. Like they're, they're no longer able to manage it the way that they have been able to manage it. Um, so I'd say anxiety is a big driving force, grief, um, losing someone or something. Um, I think even the the pandemic, of course, wow. brought a ton of grief into our lives collectively, individually. Um, so anxiety, grief, that, that word that you used, someone feeling stuck, that's one of the first um, things that I'll often hear from a client is I just feel so stuck. I can't go back. I can't go forward. I can't go side to side. I just feel really confined by my life. Um, I don't know how to get out of this pattern, whatever it may be. I don't see a way forward. Mm -hmm. um, and then in you know more severe cases, there's a lot of hopelessness and maybe suicidal ideation that, that someone's experiencing. Um, so there's a variety of experiences, but I would say that those are probably the most prominent, um, anxiety, grief, feeling stuck, feeling hopeless. Wow. And may I probably, I, I guess I'm not, I'm not surprised at any of those. I'm surprised that I didn't meant even say anxiety first, because this seems mm -hmm. to be the age of anxiety not that it wasn't there before, but it's certainly talked about a lot more now. And but may, but I think it actually has ratcheted up, or we see it in our kids more. Would you agree? Was that true? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, and, and of course, why wouldn't we? Right, uh, doing doing uh, active shooter drills in school and whatever. Why wouldn't we be seeing more anxiety in our children and mm -hmm. uh, teenagers? For wow. sure. And one of the things that I'll say to clients is anxiety is code for fear. So when we're anxious, we're afraid. And I really try to slow down with clients around that and, and break it down. It's like, okay, there's anxiety. So that means there's fear. What are you afraid of? Let's get really specific because I think when we, when we don't get specific with fear in particular, it's this nebulous kind of dark cloud that hangs over our heads. And we, um, we don't know what it is. We don't know how to get out from underneath it. So I'm um, getting really specific about what that fear is and then, you know, continuing down the track together on that. Yeah. Wow. Uh, I'm, I'm mentioned this already. I'm a spiritual director. Um, so I, so in my thinking, uh, even as I book guests for the podcast, I'm always, I tend to be thinking about the journey of transformation and I know that that's one of the things that you're all about. <laughs> um, talk a little bit about what that journey is and mm -hmm. and what is the kind of transformation that you're inviting specifically as it relates to the book? You know, mm -hmm. we've been talking generally about, you know, your even pr practice as a therapist, but but what is that journey of transformation that you're inviting readers into when they pick up your book, Seasons of Waiting? Mm, yeah. So I would say the journey of transformation is one that I have and am walking out myself. So it's not one that I'm like, say more, here please. You go. <laughs> here you yeah. go. Have fun. You know, yeah, um, good. I really understand the challenges of this journey of transformation through, 
through the waiting, um, as well as, you know, how it mirrors my approach as a therapist, very much so. Um, So I would say that first step in that journey is really coming alongside the reader and just validating how incredibly difficult and painful waiting is, which is very similar um, to how I would approach, you know, my work as a therapist, like, yes, I hear you. I see you. I'm validating that your experience of waiting is really difficult and painful. Um, and then from there, kind of, um, going back to what we were describing about fall, like the importance of releasing, um, a lot of things that have attached itself to us, um, to evaluate, you know, how have I defined waiting up until this point? Um, what has attached itself to me, whether it's a belief about myself that's very limiting, about belief about God, about my future, whatever it may be, to take inventory of, of all of that. How have I defined waiting? What is here right now? Um, and then inviting the reader to, to look at waiting and their experience of it through a different lens, to redefine it, to reframe it. Um, Because if we can see waiting differently, then we can experience it differently. We can relate to it differently. Um, We can go from this, um, this almost like place of victimization that I feel like life is happening to me. I don't have agency. I don't have influence. Um, I go from there to a place of empowerment that I can actually participate with God in in a waiting season even though circumstances may be out of my control the timing may be outside of my control um that i can see waiting as a means um for deeper healing growth transformation um but that all comes about when we can see waiting differently um and so that is definitely a really big part of of the journey that i'm inviting the reader on to um, to consider seeing waiting differently um, so that ultimately they can live a wholehearted life um, yeah. regardless of their circumstances, regardless if they're still waiting mm-hmm. um, or if they've received what they're, they were hoping for, that the goal is, is a wholehearted um, life that, um, that isn't, we're not at the mercy of our circumstances because I think waiting makes us feel like we are. Um, and that brings a whole lot of stuff up for us. But if if we know that we're not at the mercy of our circumstances, no matter how difficult they are, that we can live wholeheartedly, we can live empowered um, with God, um, that really changes the whole experience of waiting. And even hearing you say all that, um, I'm thinking about the person who says, I'm not in a season of waiting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm here to raise my hand and say, I beg to differ. (laughs) Mm -hmm. If not today, it will be tomorrow. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And honestly, if you think about it, for those of us who are um, followers of Jesus, we are all in a season of waiting in this world. It just is. It's just how intense or specific that may look for you today. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and, And if you missed it at the beginning, seasons of waiting is a year long it's a 52 week devotional that that can just walk you through through the year. Um, I I love that. I love all of the possibility that's attached to that. Uh, big thanks, uh, Barb Hill. Thank you so much mm-hmm. for writing this and also for your time today and just 
you know, kind of helping us unpack it a little bit too. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Oh, you're so welcome. Thank you for having me on and giving me the opportunity to talk more about it. It's good stuff. So seasons of waiting. I'm grateful for Barb. And as always, I say to everyone at the end, keep the conversation going.